Bibles this morning to Psalm 51. And I will turn in my Bible to Psalm 51 as soon as I can. There we go. We're studying in detail, juicing what we can from the structure and comparisons that David makes in Psalm 51. We're studying the great recovery of the great sinner of the Old Testament, David, who's also the great shepherd of Israel, um, and as a foretaste of the, the true great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And we're learning what greatness looks like in recovery, what greatness looks like in recovery. And um, I want to say that as we get started, what if you take David's words as God-given Words that he is prophetically writing, word for word, what God wanted him to write. If you believe, in other words, in what the Bible is, not what we believe about it, but what it is, that it's God's prophetic word, then you find out that <clears throat> the key to real greatness is the opposite of seeking greatness. The key to promotion is not to force your way into promotion. The key to everything before the infinite, righteous, holy, and loving God with whom we must deal is humility, humbling yourself before Him. This is the thread that runs through the entirety of Scripture. It is evident between creator and creature in Genesis chapter 2 when God says, you must absolutely or you will absolutely, he doubles the verb, eat from any tree of the garden. But from the one tree, you absolutely must not eat. He doubles the verb. Because when you do, you absolutely will die. He doubles the verb. That's Genesis 2, 17 and 18. From any tree of the garden you absolutely will eat, but if you eat from this one tree of knowledge, you will die. And what is the humility factor between God and man in that arrangement? It is that you don't know until God tells you, and then when he tells you, you actually do then know. This is the epistemology of mankind that requires humility before God. He has to be God. We have to let him, in the sense of our response, reveal himself to us. And we have to recognize that once he's told us something, we know it. How would they have known that if the tree of knowledge, if they eat it, they will die? Absolutely, without any question. They would know it because in the Hebrew paranomastic of Genesis chapter 2, verse, I think, 18. No, that's not. Is it 2.18? Let me go to it that you have to acknowledge the communication is, it's not 2.18, 2.17. So there's two doubles, verse, verse 16 of Genesis 2. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely is actually eating you will eat. You will absolutely eat any tree. Wide open. Except one, verse, verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you will absolutely, without any question, die. You won't die twice in Genesis 2, 17. It's that you will absolutely, without question, die. That's the Hebrew idiom of the doubled verb. They call it a paranomastic. What I'm saying is that by saying these things to Adam, he then knew what to eat. 
He knew it was for him to eat, and he knew that God wanted him to eat it. He also knew what not to eat. And see, he knew because God told him. And that is the baseline relationship between God and man, creator and creature. We know because he told us. And so that baseline never changes. After the fall, you could say even more so because we're no longer sinless. Now we're sinful in our very essence, in our very being, shot through with self-importance, self-assertion. And so when you get to David's recovery, obviously, what I do about my sin is I break myself down before God and humble myself. This is the path for the human race to greatness. And it stands in opposition. This, this truth of humbling ourselves before God is in opposition to any claim to human greatness or self-assertion. Let me pick on one that's popular today. The New Age mysticism of the law of attraction. The law of attraction is self-assertion and self-deification. Because if you want something bad enough in the secret or the law of attraction, if you want it bad enough and you think positive thoughts about that, then the universe has to align toward your volition because you are a strong wanter and then you start to have your way. It's just paganism. It's, it's magic. But it's popular. And it sounds all clever and, and other. It sounds exotic as it's taught by the various gurus out there, just spouting doctrines of demons. But at at heart, at bottom, it's self-deification. It's that you are divine and yourself and the universe must bend to your will. You want it bad enough. And studying uh, witchcraft as a discipline, as a a religious movement, you you come across this character, Aleister Crowley, this this demon-possessed man that said he was... Satan incarnate or something. Aleister Crowley would specify and summarize that the, the magic of witchcraft is Thelema and Logos. Thelema, will, Logos, word. You have to have the power in you to want or will something to, to, to insist. It's, we're almost October. We can talk about this, right? You have the power in you. That's the, the, the witch is a special person with special power. But then you have to have the spell. You have to have the magic word to set that power free. That's the magic of um, one form. And some Wiccans are like, oh, we don't go with that. But that's one explanation for witchcraft. And I would say just paganism. This type of magic has been practiced in all cultures. Because man, here's what we do. We think it's about us. And that thought goes to seed, and then it becomes really about us, and then all of a sudden we have power because we choose, because we will. How do you see that in your culture today that isn't supposedly religious? How is that manifesting itself? Well, your truth and my truth. You have your version of reality that you get to live in, and I have my version that I live in, and that's the nature of actual reality. Truth, you know, truth is relative to the, the, the deified human that wants to construe it. And this is the opposite of the theology of the scriptures. That God is, and that's the ultimate reality, and then we are, and he made us that way, and that's ultimate reality, and we are contingent beings on his pleasure because he construes all the reality by his choices, by his sovereign will. And so that's, that's biblical cosmology. That's the nature of our metaphysics. That's the nature of reality in which we live. And so when you see something that rises to the level of an alternative metaphysic, you got to say, this is, this, is, this is really poisonous. And I see people taken in by this. It breaks my heart to see it. At what level would I engage? What level could I say, do you know you're consumed with pagan ideas? Because you ultimately are, are being taught and concluding that you are God. That you decide what is real. Rather than what we are, God's image bearers who recognize the reality that he has shown us. We recognize, we see, we come to understand. We match the patterns that he's given us in his word with the realities that we deal with in our lives. And we are observers and recognizers and therefore worshipers of the God who is construing reality. Now, that's the theological context of all of the scriptures. 
And it it helps us understand how the great king, who has such a massive power over his country, over his military, that he can send his soldiers to battle and not lead them when kings are supposed to go out to battle in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And why that king, after being the great man and the wealthy man and the super warrior and everybody's favorite and Saul has slain his thousands and David is his, his tens of thousands, as, as the superstar of his country, how he in horrible failure that was conducted in secret becomes a national scandal for generations and generations and generations to come as God opens it up and reveals to the world what David did and what God did about it. And he becomes a story, he becomes a proverb for all of us of the dealings that we must deal with the righteous God. And he did it, God did it in part because of David's response under correction would snap back to humility before God. The Bible, after these things, after these events, exalts and magnifies and glorifies David in his humility and in his future reign in the coming kingdom with the Messiah, David's greater son. The Bible doesn't sweep him into the dustbin and say, that's all for him, like it says with Saul. I'm not saying Saul doesn't have a destiny in the coming kingdom. I'm saying that we don't hear about that. That's not part of the story. The, the end of Saul is a tragic, tragic psalm, how the mighty have fallen. That's it. That's all you get with Saul. David is glorified and exalted forever in the Scriptures. And the issue is the one character quality that we have to grab hold of and never let go and never think we have it. It's elusive. Is humility, humbling ourselves before God. And here's how it starts. It's baseline metaphysics. God is God and I am not. God is God and I am not. God is the ultimate decider and I am the responder. God's version of things are the nature of reality and my response to that is either to get on board with reality or to reject it. Humble yourself before God. In other words, tell the truth about him and about you and about things as they are. And that begins a process of coming to understand who you are. So what does humility truly look like? Humbling myself before God and saying, God, it is as you say and not as I feel necessarily. Well, I'll go to God's word and I'll find my value, not in myself, my inner sense of, well, it's me after all, right? I'll go to what God's word says and it says he made me in his image. And then that image got corrupted and broken in the fall. But it's still God's image. In Genesis 9, we're still God's image after the flood. That's biblical. That's the biblical view. We're we're broken, but we're God's image. So I have value, inherent value, because God made me. But it's not about me. It's about God who made me. And then let's go further as Christians. all All human beings are made in God's image, but let's move forward along the line of God's revelation. He got me new as his child in a sense that all human beings are not his children, the born-again ones are born to him as his children and designated, as we're studying second hour, as his heirs in Christ in this age. Heirs in Christ with God. So we no longer are just bearing God's image. We're made new in Christ. And we have that value that God has assessed to those that are his sons, his heirs, who will rule with his sons. Humility, biblically, is not, woe is me, I'm trash, or I'm garbage, or I'm just slug, slime, or something. I'm just the lowest of the low. That's not biblical humility. Biblical humility is the statement that I am what God says, and here's what he says, and I believe it, and my value comes from him, and he's given me a great value. He assigns Tremendous value and worth to you as his image bearers that he made, as his newly made ones in Christ with the new birth. He has assigned infinite value with the blood of Jesus. But you can never take credit and say, yeah, it's about me. You have to always say, because he's done this, I'm a treasure and a trophy of his grace. And when you see it that way, that's, that's a summary of Paul's attitude. When you see it that way, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's all about him. So it's not about me. It's all about him, but he has given me great value. That's biblical humility. It is telling the truth about who you are as God has stated it. And that attitude is something that you need to aspire to, 
that you need to commit to, that you need to go for every day of your life, that you need to look to Jesus for in Philippians chapter 2. And you can see it very evidently in Psalm 51, as David says, basically, it's all about you. And I just, as a broken person with the sins that I've committed, I need you to make something of me. God, make something of me is David's request. And he does. And he will. And this is the attitude that pervades this beautiful psalm. We'll pick it up in verse 7. No, I won't. I'll I'll read it and then we'll get to verse 7. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression, the summary request. Wash me thoroughly from my sin or iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. The summary is, as far as it depends on me, sin, as far as it depends on you, righteousness, holiness, goodness, faithfulness. So we're extolling God's character while we're seeing the contrast to David's failure. And that's, that's something you can live in. Live in that space. Because as you do and say, well, there's nothing about me that, that draws God's favor except that he made me and he made me new, all that he's done. It's all about him. And so you live there. God, I trust you. I thank you. It's about you. Behold, I was brought forth in, in, in iniquity, and my mother in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, in the hidden part of, uh, uh, in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. So the the inside out factor in verse what is that? Verse seven. Let me find verse seven. That's verse four. Verse seven. No, we want verse 6. I'm sorry. What he says, in iniquity, I was brought forth, and in sin my mother conceived me. To get our chops uh, warmed up to be able to understand the poetry, you've got sin and sin, and sin and sin. It's It's the rhyme in Hebrew. And this is a translation that I made word for word in the Hebrew order so you could see some of the things that are happening by virtue of the ordering. I was brought forth, I was conceived. Two words for the beginning of your life. Two words for the beginning of your life. And meaning, from my very origin. Now these are, this is, this is how Hebrew poetry works. We sin in them, we, we, we make a synonymous comparison between two thoughts that then, in the sense of what they mean, they rhyme. Hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock. They can, they can run up vertically up surfaces. Um, it's horrible. I suppose that's why rat snakes can go vertically up surfaces too. anyway. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> the parallelism in English verse is more about the sound historically than about the idea. And Hebrew verse sometimes does the sound. It rhymes in sound, but almost... Always, it's rhyming in thought, in sin and in sin. Iniquity is another word for sin. So the poet, like a, like a songwriter today, is coming up with words that are the same idea but different sound, so it doesn't the same word. Because in sin, my, I was brought forth, and in sin, my mother brought me forth, would be um, not very artistic. It would say the same thing twice, but it wouldn't say it po- poetically. So I'm trying to show you there's a poetic a couplet that is generally happening in your Psalms and in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, a lot of Ezekiel, the poetic portions of Daniel, the book of the 12 uh, minor prophets. That's not from West Virginia. They're M-I-N-O-R, the minor prophets. So, so in the prophetic scriptures, there's a lot of times there's this poetic thing. Um, all the wisdom literature, uh, Ezekiel, I'm sorry, um, Ecclesiastes, uh, Proverbs, a Song of Songs, these are all poetry like this, and they all work this way. They're looking for these comparisons, and it's fun because that means there's a little puzzle. And uh, a th- half of the Bible is, is written in this puzzle form where you're making these comparisons. He says, In truth you have desired, and wisdom you'll cause me to know. Truth and wisdom are obviously parallel ideas. They're not the same, but they're virtuous things that are related. Wisdom is skill to live your life before God. Truth is the nature of reality as God construes it. That's how I would theologically summarize both of those terms. 
Truth God has desired, God will cause to know. You see how tight that is, the way he arranges it? But in his sequence, the way he wrote it, you've desired truth in the covered places and that which is hidden. Wisdom you'll cause me to know. On the outside is what God does with these virtuous things. On the inside is the inside. And it draws our attention by its arrangement to that center thing that it's about you inside. It's not about how you look. It's about who you are inside out. And the clothes don't make the man. The clothes say something about what's going on inside the man. That's the idea. And sometimes there's a mismatch. Sometimes inside isn't showing outside. Or sometimes outside looks good and inside is corrupt, like the Pharisees. Right? But the idea is that inside is to come out, is to be who you are consistently. I have a friend who's a a very important um, theologian and writer who has an incredible speaking voice. He sounds like a 1930s radio announcer when he speaks. His voice is crisp and it's young and it's, it's clear and it's always got a little bounce and smile to it when he speaks. And I love listening to this man speak. And I've heard him preach and I've heard him teach and I've heard him talk. And then I met him in person and it was the same. Hello, it's great to meet you. It's, it was amazing to hear this man speak. Come speak to me in person if you want to know who I'm talking about. If you do know who I'm talking about, don't say it. But the point is that, that he's consistent. He's not on when he's on, and then he's like, get out of here. He's, you know, he's a consistent personality. Now, that's an affectation, the way he presents himself, the way he communicates with others. That's just an illustration. I'm not saying that you need to try to, to copy that. I'm saying we have to be consistent. That's integrity, inside out from the inner person. And this is what God is after, truth and wisdom inside out. The beautiful thing, and again, the, the theme of humility is that this is what God wants Truth, God, you have desired in my innermost person. Have you wanted that for yourself? Because if you do, if you want truth inside, lived out, then that's what God wants for you, according to prophetically David saying this in Psalm 51, 6. If you want what God wants, then you want inside out truth. If you want what God wants, then you want God to cause you to know the skill necessary to serve him, wisdom, chokhmah, right? And I'm going to make myself wise. Not in Psalm 51, 6. Right? What about what I want? I've got things that I want. Well, great. Good point. Let's put that in comparison to what God wants for you. He wants you to have infinite riches. You want better become infinite riches. We need to make some repentance on our wantings which is a big theme through the scriptures, is adjusting your desires to God's. That's a faith move where we trust in him for who he is. God, you're God, and I trust you for being who you are. So strengthen me to want the things that you want. And that's a transformation. That's a repentance. That's a change of mind that we're going for. Constantly, we're constantly looking for this. I don't want to tell you about God working on us here. Verse, verse 7 in English You'll purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. You'll cleanse me and more than snow, I'll be white. You'll purify me with hyssop. This is a, obviously a concrete image. We grab a, 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 there's some scrub brush that grows in the Middle East. A lot of scholars think this is the same as marjoram or margarum. Marjoram is the, the other thing, and, uh, which is related to oregano. If you see oregano sprigs, you've probably got something like the plant that this is. And it's the kind of plant that has little fibers that grow on the stalks. It's got ovoid or oval-shaped um, uh, little leaves, but it's got little fibers on the leaves and on the stalks that absorb moisture. And they're good for paintbrushes. And we first meet hyssop in Exodus in chapter 12 when God tells Israel how to conduct the Passover. He says, grab some hyssop and, and bind some hyssop together as, as a paintbrush and dip it in the blood of the Passover animal and paint it or sprinkle it on the doorposts and lintels of your house so that when I come through, I'll pass over your house. That's the Passover. And it's the blood sprinkled by the hyssop that saves Israel in the redemption work of God in the last plague. That's the origin of this idea of hyssop for cleansing in the Bible. And it shows up again and again 
and a few places where it's part of the ritual cleansing of the temple, of the tabernacle, of various items like the altar of the tabernacle. You use hyssop with, with the lamb's blood to purify the various things. Purifying or cleansing and hyssop is this rich image that the poet grabs to talk about how God ceremonially cleanses and purifies various places, again, beginning with the, the, with the uh, Passover. Now, why does God pass over when he sees blood on the lentils and doorposts in Egypt? Why does he do that? Because he said he would. That's not a trick question. It's the reason that the, the, the arrangement he made with Israel was, you do this to your doorposts according to the Passover instructions I'm giving you, and you'll, your family, your firstborn, will live. The reason he did it that way is because he told them that's how he would do it. And the reason he told them that is because he's making an illustration of the blood of Jesus Christ saving us from God's wrath. That's the picture of the Passover. The blood of Jesus Christ saving us from God's wrath. So there's a very rich theological sense that you get when you talk about hyssop and cleansing. But it is a ritual method of cleansing something for God's use. And this, I believe, is a hint, a foreshadowing of what he's going to get to. Why is he driving in his argument with God when, when he's making his request? Why does he say, I want you to clean me up? Why does he say, heal me, cleanse me, make me pure, give me wisdom? What is he driving towards? What is he driving towards in his requests? Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you, is verse 13. He's driving towards, I cannot be useful to you until you make me useful. But if you clean me up, I will be useful. And it's a major theme in the Bible. This takes me right back to Isaiah chapter 6. Well, actually forward in history to Isaiah 6, where he says, I'm an unclean man. I live in a, a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And God cleanses him through the angels with the, with the coal from the fire, cleanses his lips. And the angel says, this has cleansed you from your sin. The image, confession of sin, cleansing of sin, and this vision Isaiah has. And then immediately after, God says, I have a message to send. Who will go and, and, and share my message? Who can I send with my message? And Isaiah, recently cleansed of mouth, now fit to carry a message because he's clean, says, here I am, send me. The cleansing is for a purpose. And it isn't that I feel bad about my sin. That's true. There's a conscience issue. You need a clean conscience. But once my conscience is clean, I'm good to go. You might be headed towards more defilement because you think it's about you again. The reason for the cleansing in verse 7 that he's going for is going to be ultimately use. And I would say that at least in the cultic imagery of hyssop cleansing the elements of the temple, I say that cultic in a sense of religious physical worship, that's a technical term. We talk about the, 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 the cultic features. It doesn't have to do with the occult or a cult. It's a different word. The, the physical use of items to represent spiritual truths that God set up in his uh, tabernacle and temple worship, it, it is at least that these things would be set apart by this blood to God's service. The only way there is true cleansing from sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. And David's sin was ultimately poured out on Jesus Christ of the cross, just as Adam and Eve and all of human history, all the sins of the human race were poured out on Jesus. And so there, I think, is a hint, an intentional hint of the, the source of the real cleansing. But if God does it, I'll be clean. Purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. You'll cleanse me and more than snow, I'll be white. Do you see the thread of humility running through this? I'm not going to set a record of successful performance so that on balance you could say basically a good guy. It's not how it works. I'm not going to say here from this point forward, I will not do this ever again. Good. Clean. You can't clean yourself. God, if you cleanse me for your use, for your set-apart use, I'll be clean. If you clean me up, I'll be whiter than snow. I will have no stain whatsoever associated with me. And that's the only way. Why whiter than snow? Why do I need to be whiter than snow? Because of the concept of God's righteousness. 
Righteousness is not a little bit sin and a lot good. A little bit bad with a lot good. It's not like that. It's infinite, perfect, absolute moral perfection. You know, I'm giving all these adjectives to describe perfection, which needs no adjectives. It's like truth, right? Truth is truth. I don't have to add an adjective. Real truth. Well, but I repeat myself, right? So God is perfectly righteous. And there's no, there's no shade of sin associated with that righteousness. And that's where fellowship with God lives. So if I want fellowship with him on his terms as he's perfectly, let's do what John says, in the light, as he is in the light, then I'm going to need him to make me perfectly clean and not, not bear any shade of this sin. And if God does it, David says, I'll be clean. You cleanse me and I'll be whiter than snow. You'll make me hear joy and jubilation. I'll go for that. Literally, you will, in the Hifil stem, Shema me. You will make me hear, Shema. You'll make me hear, Sasson, or Sasson. Sasson, not hair products. Sasson, what is that? It means joy. Sasson, where we get the name Susan. Joy. Sasson, you'll, ha- you'll make me hear joy and Simcha. Simcha, jubilation. Yeah, you've got a niece named Simcha. And they will shout, they will shout in exultation, and then the subject of that verb, to shout, will blow our minds, the etzim, the bones that you have broken. This line was going great. You'll make me hear joy and jubilation. You'll make rejoice You'll make shout and exultation like there's a party, the bones that you've broken. See the incredible poetic contrast? This is sweet and sour right here. This is bitter and sweet together. So, is this where I want to show this? Yeah, I do. I think so. Yeah, this is a good example. So I keep talking about the center-seeking structure, and I'd like you to learn this. It's a first-hour sort of excursus. Take a little commercial break to learn how to study the Bible. Chiasmus is the technical term for what I'm talking about when you invert the order of the, the two lines. And uh, the reason we call it chiasm or chiasmus is because of the letter key in Greek. Now, if you pledged in a fraternity and you were in part of chai or something, uh, I'm sorry. But that's the letter chi or key. And it's the CH letter that they have in Greek that's the first letter in Christos, in the name Christ, which is the Greek for Messiah. So it's the the chi is the is the letter chi. And it looks like this in cursive lowercase the way we write Hebrew um, today. The way the manuscripts that we have that are in lowercase show this letter for this this shape for this letter chi. And again, we we say chi. And you're supposed to kind of pronounce it like lach and lachness, like okay, like Christos is the probably how they said the Messiah in Greek, but we'll say Christos. All right. So it's this letter. Why do we call it chiasm if you have a center-seeking thing? I just want to show you the origin of this this device that someone said that's how these poetry structures work. You have line A, which where God acts, God does something. Line B, you have a statement of joy. There's something that is rejoicing. But the next line is about joy, followed by God acting. And they call it a chiasm because they say when you invert these two, when you go A, B to B, A, it becomes a center-seeking or focus. So like X marks the spot. That's what chiasm is. And the theory of this is that the authors are intentionally doing this in the text. Dwayne Garrett, in his commentary on Genesis, Rethinking Genesis, has traced one through the entire narrative of Noah's flood, where the center of the story is God remembered Noah. And that's the focal thing in in that story. And it may be that in the long development of this story, that to say it, to remember it, to, to bring it to mind... And, and, and transmit it orally because most of the people uh, perhaps are not as literate as we 
we wonder about literacy and stuff, but if you're, if you're transmitting it orally and memorizing it, it lends itself to memory. I know I'm backing, I'm going into this structure and God remember no, and I'm backing back out of the structure. So this is something that scholars have observed and we go looking for. And this begins the hunt for chiasm. You go spend your time in your Bible study to go, is this one? Is this one? I'll never forget walking up to Dr. Constable in class at Dallas Seminary and saying, is this one? And he said what we all say when a student asks, is this one? We say, maybe. It may well be. And the bigger the structure where you think you find one, the more suspicious I get. And to me, it's very obvious in verse 8. You is addressing God in the second person will make me hear. You uh, is uh, in the second person talking about what God does, broken. And it's at the end of So we begin the sentence with the verb. We end this, the next sentence with a verb. So that to me is a really obvious parallel of the second person verb. And then you will make me hear and you, will, you have broken my bones. He doesn't say a comparison with bones. When he says you'll make me hear, he just says you've broken my bones. But in the middle is joy and jubilation and the shout of exultation. These things go together. And it's very clear that the line breaks right here between jubilation and they will shout. That's a very clear line break. So this is definitely an example where the author inverts the order in the second line. And if we're right to say, he says these little puzzles for us to see where the comparisons are, verse by verse. If we're right to say that, and he inverted the line, then we're supposed to say there's a focus that he's drawing our attention to. And what is the focus? I'm focused on broken bones. But the focus for the structure apparently is the joy. On the inside is my rejoicing. On the outside is God's action. So what do I get? Joy and jubilation. What does God do? He brings the joy, but even through the breaking. So you knew what this meant when you just read it in English. Without any looking at the comparison. You know, you make me hear joy and jubilation. They'll shout in exultation. What will the bones you've broken? You, you know what that means. And you know that there's a contrast here between joy and breaking. But what you didn't see was that the emphasis apparently that David's making is that thought at the end of line A of joy. I'm going to say that one again and focus and draw attention to joy. What does that do for you? What do you get from making that analysis, from thinking that through? Saying David's focusing on joy, even when he talks about God breaking our bones. As an image for his correction, his discipline that really hurts. That, you know, if you fall down, you might get up and dust it off. But if you break a bone, you're going to the hospital. This is serious. This is, this is the kind of training that you don't want to receive. But sometimes it's necessary. And in through it is joy because of the necessary correction that you make. But what you get from this is that God is not the angry, wrathful God of, uh, of the satanic imagination. God is the righteous, holy, and loving God who sent His Son to die for you. And that is not so that you could wallow around in your sin about what a sinner you are. It's so that you could rejoice and exult with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What's he going to do next? Well, we're going to go to verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. Concrete language to describe, don't look at me. Don't look at my sins. Separate the relationship you and I have from my problem of sin. Hide your face from my sins. And my iniquities blot out. Now, let's see if we're paying attention to the chiastic little discussion, the chiasmus. How does the first line end? Hide your face from my sins. How does the second line begin? All my iniquities. Now in my English, go to verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. They put it in English order and lose the focal chiastic structure because of the nature of English order. They put it A, B, A, B. But in Hebrew, David wrote it in A, B, B, A. So the focus is my sin and my iniquity. And what I want is for God to do something about it. Hide your face and blot it out. Because why? Why would he focus on sin? 
Because it is a real problem and God does have to do something about it. It's not something you just, well, you know, whatever. When I hid from my sin, when I pretended that I didn't have sin, David says, right? I had no rest. You wore me out. You want me to tell the truth. That's 1 John chapter 1. Hide your face from my sins and all my iniquities blot out. And then verse 12, a clean heart create in me, O God, and a steadfast spirit renew in my inward parts. A clean heart created me, O God, and a steadfast spirit renew in my inward parts. And this is a tough comparison because the heart might be the inward parts. Clean heart, inward parts. Oh God, a steadfast spirit, or it could be a clean heart, a steadfast spirit, because God is the one making it, create, renew, and then God is compared to the inside man. And that's how I take it. I take this to be a A, B, A, B. Notice I take it that way. I absolutely for certain know that it means a lave of Tahor, a clean heart, bara, make in me, create, like in creation, bara, in the beginning God created, that's the same word. So you have to do something in me that, that is outside of me. Create in me a clean heart. It's his request. And he focuses, he leads with the clean heart, and he leads with the desire for the steadfast spirit. And I think this is, the more I look at this, the more I'm certain of it, because the clean heart is the thing he's making, the steadfast spirit he's renewing. He wants to create this in me. He wants, so it's, it's the picture is make my heart fresh. It isn't that I didn't believe in Jesus before, and now I believe in Jesus, so you make a new heart. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the transformation of the inner person. Who needs that? We all need that. Who needs that regularly? We all need it on the regular because we're still dealing with the presence of sin, and at times we succumb to it. And then our heart isn't a clean heart, and we need God to make us a clean heart, make it fresh. And he asked for that. A steadfast spirit renew in my inward person, my, in, my innermost person. Let's compare clean and steadfast. We don't often put these two things together. Clean and steadfast or persevering, dogged, tenacious, steadfast. Both virtuous things, but do we often think of these things together? How about when I know my conscience is defiled, when I feel that defilement of conscience, how weak am I? How unreliable do we become, right? Make me, this is the request for God to make the person of him that, he, that God wants him to be. Do not send me from your presence. Shalach, to send out, do not send me milfaneka from your presence, from your face, literally. Do not send me from your presence, and your Holy Spirit do not take from me. Can you play the game, the little chiasm game with verse uh, 11? What are his two requests? Don't send me, don't take from me. Now, that's an inversion of idea. Don't send me and don't take out of me. Both requests. See what he's doing? So the verbs are on the outside. Don't send is how he starts. Don't send me away and don't take from me. On, On the outside request, the center is God's very presence, his face, and his ruach kadoshka, your your. Holy Spirit. The word in Hebrew I want you to know for spirit is ruach. Ruach. It could mean breath, wind, the spirit of man, or the spirit of God. And it's very absolutely, definitely the third person of the Trinity here because he says kadosh. That's the Hebrew adjective holy. Kadosh. There are other words related to these three letters, Q-D-S-H. There are other words that are in the same word group that mean to be holy or holiness, but this is the adjective holy. 
It's the Holy Spirit, and it's Ka, your Holy Spirit. So without any question, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of Elohim in Genesis 1-2. This is the Spirit that was the promise of the Father. Jesus said, you stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father in Luke 24. And in Acts 1-8, Jesus says, when you've received the Holy Spirit, you'll receive power. This is the third person of the Trinity. We have one God and three persons, one person of whom is the Father, who is not the Son, the other is the Son, who is not the Father, and then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is neither Father nor Son. We have one God in three persons, and this is the third person of the Trinity who had come to abide in David in, the, in what we call, as an Old Testament doctrine, we call the doctrine of endowment. We call it endowment because it was a clothing at times. It was described as God clothing, the Spirit would clothe the person, and enduo is to clothe in Greek. So we call it endowment. That's what theologians have come up with to describe this work of God in the believer, a few, apparently believers, generally of believers. But it is not because they are believers and so regenerate so God gives them their, his spirit because that didn't happen according to John seven twenty eight until Jesus was glorified. So what is this doctrine of endowment? It's a special enablement of God's spirit for specific tasks for just a few people in the Old Testament. This Holy Spirit came upon David when he was anointed. If you read, if, just real quick, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the story of David's anointing, Jesse sent, or, I'm sorry, Jesse sent and brought David in in 1 Samuel 16, 12. Now he was red, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance, ruddy, probably not flushed cheeks, probably red hair. And scholars are divided on that, but uh, probably red-headed. With beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he, after rejecting David's brothers. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And boy, a lot of things just happened. You saw the, in the screenplay, you saw him pour the oil, and then summary, 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 we're out of, out of scene, out of frame. But, but it says that the Holy Spirit came mightily upon him, that's a lock to break forth upon, as, it, as the Holy Spirit does with Samson and just a few others in the Bible. And he was with him from then on. And this is what we call endowment. This is the ministry of the Spirit in which the Holy Spirit would work in a few people, a very small percentage of the people in the Old Testament for various purposes. And God had given the Holy Spirit to Saul. And Saul, like the judges before him, was specially able to rule and especially lead militarily. And this is, has a lot to do with what the kings and the judges would do. But verse 14 is the horror, is the tragedy that David is trying to avoid. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And God has a special purpose, plan, and development of the arc of Saul's character from then on that will train David and manifest David's character and how Saul treats him. But the point is that in the arc of the story, the Holy Spirit leaves Saul to enable him to rule and settles upon David to enable him to rule. And David is requesting that this ministry not be taken from him. That's the origin of this request. And that's why we say, and we're right to say it, this is not something we pray today. We're not asking that God would take his spirit from us because the Apostle Paul says in this new work of the Holy Spirit since the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, since that work began, the Apostle Paul says the Holy Spirit has come in your heart to abide forever. You've been sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. This is a different work than what's going on here. So how do you apply it? If I cannot lose the indwelling presence of the Spirit, what can I lose? And the answer is that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.18 commands us to be filled by means of the Spirit. You can lose, for a time, the influence of the Spirit on your life through the Word of God. You can willfully choose to reject that work of God, and you don't want Him to do that. You don't want to quench or grieve the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, grieving the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quenching the Spirit. So I would apply this idea about the work of the Spirit. I don't want to be characterized by my flesh. I want to be characterized by the thinking of Christ. 
I want it to richly dwell within me. I want to walk in the light as God is in the light and the truth. So how do you pray? Well, God, I want fellowship with you. And I don't want to be broken in fellowship. I want you to restore it. And some of you say, I know theologically that at the point at which I confess my sins, I'm rendered back into fellowship with God. That's a lot of verses that are put together to make that proposition, and that's fine. That's fi- it's fine, but let's not pretend this is a mechanical arrangement. This is a personal arrangement between you and God. God, I want fellowship with you. Let me walk in it. We know that it is God's will for us to walk in the light as he himself is in the light, because it says so in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. Why don't you pray in accordance with God's will? Father, strengthen me to walk in the light as you're in the light. Ask him for it. A lot of times we think this, this crazy thought about prayer that God either already knows, so I don't need to tell him, or God already commanded it, so I don't need to ask for it. But Jesus taught us again and again and again to, to pray in accordance with God's revealed will. How do you know what God wants? He told you. <laughs> and that's humility. You know what God wants because he told you. Father, we thank you for uh, this meditation time we've had on Psalm 51. Think through some of the challenging things that David says that take us to, through the scriptures and um, remind us of who we are before you. Father, you've called us to greatness, and that greatness is through humility. Make us successful in that endeavor. We want to be humble before you. We want to tell the truth day to day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.